Take your Bible and go to Matthew chapter 24, if you would, if you have a Bible. And uh, if you're visiting with us, uh, Matthew is the first book of your New Testament, split up into chapters. So if you go up to the top of the page, you'll find a number, then a colon, then a number, number. Uh, we're at 24, and uh, we're going to be at verse number 32. So 24, 32, Matthew chapter 24. And we're studying just verse by verse, line by line, right through this, this book of the Bible. Matthew's record of the life of Jesus, and uh, been blessed by every moment of it. Good to have my my brother and uh, fellow laborer, co-laborer David, with us this morning. Um, I don't know what this feels like for you. I, I imagine it's quite odd to just be doing nothing this morning, but and to not have your wife and your three children uh, at your side. If you don't know, Kathy. Uh, Went into labor eight weeks. It's eight weeks early, correct? Eight weeks early, and uh, gave birth to Meg Comfort Morrison. And uh, I assume everybody's asking you, "Oh, Megan," and you're going to say, "No, it's Meg," right? So is that what everybody's asking you? Oh, it is Megan. It, it, yeah, right. So that's what it, everyone is asking you. Is it Megan? No, I said Meg on purpose because it's Meg. M E G Meg. So Meg Comfort Morrison was born uh, at. Morris, because Meg Morrison is my cousin. She, she doesn't have comfort, but she's my cousin. Poor Meg. She's going to be called Megan by me quite a bit. Um, and Morrison. She's not going to have either name right. Um, what's Friday night? Friday morning? Saturday morning? Saturday morning, 2.35, something like that, 2.40. And um, this was all very sudden, and obviously, and uh, things moved really, really fast. And she was born at five pounds, 10 ounces. So if you know anything about the Morris kids, they, they birth them healthy. I mean, they, they come out of there with uh, meat on the bones, and, and we're thankful for that. And she's she's uh, developed quite a bit. She's at Valley Children's. We'll probably be there for a couple weeks. And uh, we're going to talk about how we can serve and love on the Morris family. I know that you're concerned to do that. I've been praying for them, many of you. If this is the first you know of it, uh, you can be praying for Kathy. She's at Clovis Community, uh, C-section, so she's in there for a couple of days. And... Uh, And Meg is up at Valley Children's being well cared for by the team at uh, the Children's Hospital. So been a full week for David, and I'm glad glad to even have him here. It's an opportunity for us to express our love and care for for him and his family. Um, Last week, I I put here in my notes, I'm I'm not a prophet. I wrote that down in my notes as if I needed to remind myself. Um, I'm not a prophet, and I'm not the son of a prophet, unless you take prophet in the New Testament to be a preacher, then I am a son of a prophet, I suppose, because my dad's a pastor. But last week, I mentioned to you that in our study of Matthew chapter 24, in particular verses 15 through 31, which is where we spent our time last Lord's Day, that for some of you, there would be disappointment or frustration with what was said or what wasn't said or how it was said or how it wasn't said. And and that that certainly I know for some of you has come true. At the end of that time, you either wanted more information or you wanted different information and I just want to take a, just a minute here at the beginning before we jump back into Matthew 24 to remind you that um, we, we love, we as the pastoral team, we love and we as a church family love to talk about the scriptures. We want to study and examine and think and discuss. So don't ever hesitate to take that opportunity. I love to talk about the text of scripture. Um, especially the ones that we have just studied that are most fresh. We can discuss angles and differences in interpretation and why certain people take something one way, why we take it some 
particular way. And uh, all of that is wide open. You don't ever have to wonder if we're willing or eager to discuss the Bible uh, together with you. We love it. That's why we teach it. That's why we spend our time on Sundays uh, focusing our attention for the bulk of our time in this book. We love this book. So please um, come and interact. If there's confusion or disagreement or frustration, want to know all that and be able to help. And last week's study provides a perfect opportunity for that to happen because there's there's a particular part of our theology, of biblical theology, that is less than crystal clear. It's ambiguous. Uh, it's, it's muddy. It's hard to see through. And so there are valid positions, three validly and biblically argued positions. And I took one of them last week. So in taking one of them, it left two other groups in those three options, wondering if... Um, if they had missed something or most of the time wondering if I had missed something. And so I'd love to talk about that. I was encouraged. I was rereading this morning, actually, Doug Moo, who is um, one of the authors in a book that I can recommend to you on the timing of the rapture, three views of the rapture, pre, mid or post tribulational. And uh, that's a book that's been a huge resource. The reason is because you have evangelicals arguing for each one of those positions. And then the other two evangelicals, rebuttal each position. So you have pre-tribulationalism explained and defended. Then you have mid and post responses. Then you have mid-tribulational views represented and then pre and post responded. You get the idea. So Doug Moo in that book says this, because this conviction, that is his tribulational timing position, which I share with him, because this conviction is founded upon logic, inferences, and legitimately debated points of exegesis, that is careful study of the language of the scriptures. I cannot, indeed, I must not allow this conviction to represent any kind of barrier to full relationship with others who hold differing convictions on this point. May our discussion on this point enhance, not detract from our common expectation of the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Titus chapter 3 and verse 2. That's a great statement. And that's one that I share and that we as a pastoral team share. Um, this is something that is important. There's nothing revealed. That's why we started back in Matthew 24. We started Deuteronomy 29, 29. There's nothing that's revealed that's not important for us to understand. But this is not as important or most important as justification by faith or the doctrines of grace or whatever main, primary, clear, dogmatic discussion represented in our scriptures. So, Discussion is open within the bounds of what is clearly communicated. What is unclear needs to be held with grace. And, um, and uh, I hope that there will be opportunities to interact with you and live that out. Uh, for those of you who are concerned or confused or frustrated, I want to be a blessing to you. We want to be a blessing to you. And I just want to remind you of that. Bring your Bible and come and let's, or call and grab your Bible and we'll come to you and, and chat and talk about Matthew 24. Let's pick it up in verse number 32 and let's read together just to set up our study for this morning. And this is such a fitting closure. Uh, the master teacher himself, Jesus, is on the Mount of Olives. He's interacting with just his 12 disciples, 11 of whom will be faithful to him. One will desert soon after this and will betray him, Judas, and will die. Jesus interacts with these 12 disciples there on the side of the mountain. And this is really the, the conclusion before he uses parables, which is one of the most enjoyable parts of Jesus' teaching ministry. 
in my own study, and I trust for many of you as well, and we'll examine those in chapter 25 in a few weeks. But let's read together the conclusion of the main body of Jesus teaching at this fifth discourse called the Olivet Discourse, beginning in verse number 32. These are the words of God. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the son of man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give him their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants, and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and an hour he does not know. And he will cut him in pieces, and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. These are the words for our consideration this morning. Let's pray and ask God for his gracious help. Father, thank you for your word and your people. What a thrilling opportunity we have as those who have been granted eyes to see and ears to hear the good news of Jesus. Those who have the provision of your Holy Spirit as the down payment on our inheritance, the return of our Savior. Who helps us, who illuminates our understanding, who gives us the ability to comprehend the fullness of what is communicated through your word. What a privilege this is. What a distinct opportunity we have for these next few moments to humble ourselves under your word, to not stand in judgment over your word, but to allow your word to inform our thoughts, to renew our minds so that we might think your thoughts after you. We have, we have opportunity now to pause and to request grace from you. And that opportunity exists only because we have been brought near to you from afar. We were set apart from you completely by our sin. Utterly incapable of restoring any relationship to you, our creator and our judge. But we now have the opportunity as your people, who are studying your word, to ask for your help. 
Because your son, who is at your right hand, has substituted himself and his righteousness has been credited to our accounts and our wicked sinfulness has been credited to his account at the cross where he bore our wrath. He bore what we were due. And three days later, rising victorious over death, never to die again, he has conquered sin and death. And so we come boldly into your throne room, understanding the weightiness and the the seriousness of the activity we're involved in. And we ask for help. I ask for help in proclamation that there would be clarity and conviction. And I ask for help for reception for those that are hearing, that there would be understanding and conviction that leads to application. May we be hearers this morning, but may we not rest in hearing only, but be doers of your word as we leave, obedient to Matthew 24. Shape us to look like your son, as you have promised we ask, Father, through the power of your spirit, in the name of our Christ. Amen. Well, this chapter has been a rewarding study for me. Each one of these discourses has been um, another layer of watching and listening and being involved with the ministry of Jesus. And that's been a distinct privilege here because this one of the discourses, the fifth and final discourse of Jesus that Matthew uses kind of as the structure of this record is the most unfamiliar, has been the most unfamiliar to me as a Bible student, as a Christian for a number of years now. And so it's been rewarding to come and to examine with you and to study beforehand and then to study with you and to see the potentials that that revolve around the coming end of all things, the day of the Lord. So we noticed in verses 1 through 14, there were four potentials that exist that we need to be mindful of. There's potential for deception before Christ comes. There's potential for terror and fear because of the activities that will be the, the, the birth pangs, the beginning of the birth pangs. There's opportunity for desertion, and there will be desertion on the part of those who claim to be followers of Christ. In the face of the coming end, many will fall away. Many will walk away in the face of persecution or the potential of suffering. But gloriously, there's also that fourth potential that we watched and noticed in verses 1 through 14. At the end, in verse 13 and 14, the gospel will go out and salvation will be accomplished. The goodness of Christ will go to every corner of the globe before Christ returns. Every nook and cranny will experience the proclamation of the gospel, and many will be saved. Those four potentials are then followed by three major realities that mark the end. And this begins in verse number 15. This is where we studied last week. I want to be sure that you remember this or that you're caught up to speed a little bit if you weren't with us. As always, these are on the internet videos and uh, CDs are available for you if you missed the study. Three major realities in verses 15 through 31. The enemy of Christ comes, that's the Antichrist or the beast, as he's talked about in Thessalonian letters and in Revelation. The fraudulent Christ, the counterfeit Christ will multiply. Many people will say they are the Christ or they know where the Christ is. But finally, the third and, and, and ultimate reality that marks this time is the return of Christ, the glorious return of Christ. 
He comes with a trumpet sound and with the shout of angels and arrives in the clouds. It will be like lightning from one end to the other of the sky. All who are his will know what is taking place and will glory in the triumphant return of Christ. All of those studies and all of those details in the study of verses 1 through 31 have left us with one big idea that's been the overarching umbrella theme for our study in Matthew 24 and in 25. Pretty simple. Biblical theology of the end is vital to Christian living in the present. Right? So understanding and truth about the end is critical to living this week as God's people. And this is not changed in the final section of our study in Matthew 24 in the Olivet Discourse. The end informs the present. The future has everything to do with now. So if these things seem way out there and distant and unimportant and unnecessary to be discussing, and if if disagreement causes you to say, well, who really cares anyway? You've misunderstood. You've missed the point, I believe, of everything that's here. Jesus communicating to the 12 disciples is preparing them to live in the moment he's teaching them and in the moments coming as he exits this earth and promises his return. So Christian theology and a biblical theology of the end is vital to Christian living in the present. Our expectations must be shaped by the end of all things. That brings us to verse 32, all the way down through verse number 51. And with that description of of the precursors of judgment and the return of Christ, and then the details, the major realities, the major events, if you will, of the the end of the great tribulation leading to the second coming of Christ, we come to this final portion of the chapter. And I want to do something that I, I don't know that I've ever done before. I just want to share with you three personal observations. These are devotional observations from the final portion of Matthew chapter 24. So our outline is, is quite simple. Um, these are personal. These are the fruit of my study as every week is, but in a very personal way. Um, I want to deliver them to you, and I hope they'll be helpful to you as you come back and study this in the future. Number one, Jesus' coming is nearer than I think it is. Reality number one, observation number one, Jesus' coming is nearer than than I think it is. Verse number 32 picks up this theme or this, this proposition. From the fig tree, Jesus says, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, or just like when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away. But my words, Jesus says, will not pass away. So Jesus coming is nearer than I think of it as being. It's nearer than I think. Let's look at the details here briefly in this paragraph and see that this is, this is true from the text. First element that Jesus uses is such a, such a powerful part of his teaching and one that we can all learn and we all use. In fact, if you have um, grandparents or other older people in your life who you remember fondly or who you still experience interaction with that is is informative to you helps you think about life you know that if they're if they're good at what they do they do exactly what jesus does right here 
And he's the best there is. He takes an everyday, common picture, something that is universally familiar, and he uses it to depict what he's trying to communicate. So he says, you know about the fig trees. And the fig trees were the poor fig trees. They were the center of a lot of illustrations. You remember that one. um, Fig trees aren't sad. Let's not personify trees. But that one fig tree along the way out of Jerusalem, Jesus used it to display the hypocrisy of the religious leaders that he was confronting. Here he uses the fig tree as an everyday familiar part of life and he uses the picture of the harvest season for the understanding of the disciples as soon as its branches become tender and it puts out leaves or puts out its leaves you know that summer is near so in other words the spring bloom assures you that the summer summer harvest is coming and i feel once again every time jesus goes because he lived in a agricultural economy every time he goes here i i kind of cringe in my study thinking i have to talk about agriculture to you because so many of you are related somehow to agriculture this is not hard to understand in the springtime fig trees get a lot of sap pumping through them they produce leaves and blossoms and they prepare to give the fruit that they will give to those that will harvest it And Jesus uses that picture to make very clear his intention in communicating here to the disciples. So also, verse 33, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. In other words, there's a springtime of the return of Christ that promises, that assures, that should build anticipation and expectation of the summer harvest of his return. Right? Now, there's some details in this that are difficult for us to interact with. And if you're a careful reader, no doubt you've already started to ask yourself questions from this text. Jesus coming is nearer than I think. And the fig tree is the illustration that drives that home. But there are some key phrases that we need to address. First one is all these things. Now, here we are going to get down. We're going to go past the surface down into the actual words. Verse 33 So also when you see all these things, you know that he's near at the very gates. Now that's that's important, right? We'd want to know what all these things are because that will assure us that we are we are seeing the springtime blossom that will prove and build the anticipation of the summer harvest. So what are all these things? Now, before you rush into an answer and before we rush into an answer that seems so obvious to us, Let's be sure that we're aware of what verse number 34 says. Truly, I say to you, that's plural you to the disciples. This generation will not pass away until. All these things take place. So you have matching all these things in 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 the matter of words, you have the same phrase used by Jesus, which is big time important to us understanding that Jesus coming is nearer then at least I think, and I'm sure many of you think of it as being. All these things, I believe, either refers to everything up to this point. Verses 1 through 31, or 4 through 31, really, is when the explanation starts. It includes the tribulation, the great tribulation, and it includes the manifestation of the Son at His return. Or, all these things refers to just verses 4 through 14. 
which are the precursors to the end and to the culmination in the coming of Jesus. I believe it's best understood as verses 4 through 14. Jesus represents all these things as what can be known that he is near, that he's at the gate, that it's about to happen, that it's about to come. And so as this generation, which is the second key phrase, sees all these things, their anticipation level ought to build. It ought to grow. They ought to be more eager for the return of Christ. They ought to assume that it's nearer. The fear of Christ, or the return of Christ rather, is never connected to fear for the people of Christ. We're to be building in anticipation of his return. Why? Because just like the fig tree that goes through the cycle to harvest, all these things happening prepares the way for the anticipation to grow in the return of Christ. That leaves us with a million dollar question from verse number 34. Who is this generation? Who is this generation? Now, there are a couple of alternatives that are offered. This generation, some would take and understand and interpret this to mean it's talking about the disciples in their temporal generation. That is the actual time frame of the disciples' life. So the generation in which Jesus is living, he's communicating to. Second option would be that Jesus is talking to the disciples about a generation in the future. So the generation that sees these things, everything will take place during their life. It will be fast, in other words. These things will happen quickly. So it's the future generation that Jesus is referencing with this generation. A third alternative is that Jesus is talking to the disciples, but they don't know it. He's using them as representatives. So he's talking about them, but or he's talking to them, but he's talking about Israel. So this generation, disciples, Jewish men, and what Jesus is actually talking about are the Jews as a people group. Or this generation, as in the disciples who are standing before him, but what he what he's using them to represent is all of the people of God, the church and Israel combined. So three options are posed that all are presented with some measure of argumentation. I want to take you to what I believe is the best understanding of this generation. The way we're going to do this is I want to take you back to all of the uses that Jesus has in Matthew, Matthew's record, of this generation. Let's just see them. Let's see when Jesus uses this. Who is he communicating to when he uses this phrase? What is the implication of this generation? I think that that prompts us toward one of two valid options. There are two that I believe are most carefully thought through and we'll land on one of them. So go back to chapter 11. Just flip back a couple pages to chapter 11 and let's see the first use of this generation in Matthew chapter 11 and verse number 16. You'll remember this this part if you were with us in our study. Jesus has sent out the 70 he sent out the disciples to go. They're the first responders to um, the kingdom mission. And following the, the description of chapter 10 and all that was going on with them um, and the demands that would be placed on them as disciples, John the Baptist sends messengers to Jesus. Right? So the crowds are around Jesus and the disciples of John the Baptist come. Now, why are disciples from John the Baptist coming in chapter 11? Well, because John the Baptist is in prison. And, and he knows that the Messiah is here. He remembers that when Jesus came to be baptized, he said to the people, I'm not worthy to unlatch his laces. I'm not, I'm not worthy to work on his sandals. 
This is the Messiah. This is the one. And following the baptism, he remembers hearing audibly the voice of the Father. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. John the Baptist knew that Jesus was the Messiah, but he's getting impatient. He's in prison. He's waiting for the overthrow of Rome, for the establishment of the kingdom. What's going on? And so the disciples come and ask Jesus, are you really, are you really the Messiah? Jesus responds with telling the disciples of John the Baptist to take back Old Testament prophecies and that that would do for John. And he follows that up with speaking about John. This is gracious of the Lord. He says in verse 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. For the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent will take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. So he's the second Elijah prophesying the coming of the Messiah. Verse 15, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Now, I can't unpack all this again, but basically what Jesus is saying is, this generation is marked by the inability to read the signs. It's like kids that are playing. We played the one song and you're supposed to do one thing. We played the other song, you're supposed to do the other thing. You didn't do it right. This generation is not responding to John the Baptist and they're not responding to Jesus accordingly. It's crystal clear that this generation in chapter 11 are the people who heard John the Baptist and were under the ministry of Jesus. Okay? First opportunity to see this generation. Move to chapter 12, just a page over. Chapter 12, Jesus is again communicating, this time with scribes and Pharisees. And these condemnations are staggering. Verse number 41, the men of Nineveh, you remember Nineveh? Wicked place. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with the next two words, this generation, and condemn it. For they, that is Nineveh, repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So Jesus here condemns the scribes and the Pharisees who marked the religious system that was, that was prevalent in Israel. And he says, Nineveh will rise up at the judgment and they'll testify against you. Why? Because Nineveh is different than this generation. Nineveh responded when Jonah preached. This generation ignores it when the Son of Man preaches, when the Messiah of Heaven is here. This generation, chapter 12, the people that are hearing Him, the people that are immediately present in His teaching. Chapter 23, we just finished this portion. Let's go to chapter 23 and see the last of this generation before our instance in 24. Chapter 23 and verse number 36 Jesus is finishing the seven woes, the condemnation of the false leaders, the blind guides, those that are 
hypocrites. And his condemnation in verse 34 leads us into our last usage of this generation. Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of the innocent Abel, first murder, to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar, the great prophet. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. That is, the scribes and the Pharisees in the temple hearing the condemnation. So every instance to this point, leading us back now to chapter 24 and verse number 34, I believe leads us to one conclusion. When Jesus says, truly I say to you all, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. He's talking to the people that are hearing him. He's identifying them. It's a stretch to make him identify anybody else. It's a plural you. He says you. He's talking to them in particular. And he says they will see all these things. Verse 33. And then this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So I believe the best understanding of this generation is the disciples and their lifetime. Obviously, Judas is about to die. He's going to take his own life very soon. But their generation, marked by their, their lifetime, they would see all these things. That leaves us to one and only one conclusion for all these things. It certainly cannot be the desolation that comes with abomination. It certainly cannot be the great tribulation. That has not taken place. And the disciples never saw those instances. But everything that was described that would precede, that would set up the return of Christ, has taken place and took place in the very first generation of God's church. The apostles, the twelve disciples, would experience everything, all these things, all the precursors that would bring Jesus near to the gate and that are described in verses number 4 through 14. I believe that is the best option for understanding this from Jesus. He's not messed up. He didn't miss it. The disciples didn't walk around going, Jesus didn't know what he was talking about. And in fact, Jesus drives home the validity of his word. And if we, didn't, if we weren't convinced of his correctness in verse 34, he makes us unavoidably aware of it in verse 35. Because in verse 35, Jesus says, everything you know and see, it's going to go away. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now, There's a direct correlation here to Psalm 119, verses 89 and 90. Almost a direct quote. What Jesus is doing here, make no mistake about it. Jesus' words are being directly connected to, in essence, in the very power and correctness and living, breathing, life-changing work that they accomplish as God's word. Jesus' word is God's word. So what Jesus says, this generation isn't going away until all these things happen. It's as sure as every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is talking about the disciples to the disciples and their temporal generation. Everything preemptive leading to the great tribulation and the coming of Christ in his glory 
would be experienced in the life of the current generation. That means that the only thing left is the, the culmination, the great tribulation, and the glorious return of Christ to conquer His enemies. Ushering in a thousand year reign that we know is the millennium from Revelation chapter 20 verses 1 through 3. Now there's big implications. Jesus' coming is nearer than I think. The return of Christ is intended to be fuel in the engine of my walk in faith. The just walk by faith, you live by faith. And the return of Christ is to be the fuel in the engine. It's the glorious cross that we look back to and the grace of God in the past and we look with anticipation to His return in the glorious future. It's the fuel. It drives me. It moves me. It motivates me. I see His coming. I know His coming. I'm eager for His coming. And all these things have been accomplished. Therefore, all that is left is the end. The great tribulation and the glorious return of Christ. If Jesus gets the timing wrong here, then everything else He said is open to discussion. Our hope is founded or dashed upon the validity of these words. Therefore, because I believe Him, because the Spirit of God has opened my understanding and my heart to believe Him, I believe Jesus' coming is nearer than I often think of it as being. Second personal devotional truth that comes from this final section. Jesus' coming is weightier than I think. It's heavier than I think. It's more, it's more decisive than I want to think about. Verse 37. Verse 36, rather. But concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Verse 37. For... As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus' coming is nearer than I think of it as being, and it is weightier than I think of it as being. 36 is a startling verse, right? I I mean, because of our understanding of who Jesus is, it's a startling verse to hear him say what he says in verse number 36. But no one knows the day and the hour. So let's just be crystal clear here. No one knows the day and the hour except the Father. So when they come on and tell you they know the day and the hour, just go ahead and turn it off. And write them off completely. This is, this is unknowable information. The Father alone knows this. Even the Son and the angels don't have the information on the day and the hour of the second coming of Christ. Now, that's an interesting expression and application of our understanding of who Jesus was and is. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, you remember these words, who, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, he was equal in every way with God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or hung on to, but made himself nothing. He emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave, a servant being born in the likeness of men. Jesus is 100% God, 100% man. And in His humble 
human ministry as he walked upon this earth. He set aside, he emptied himself of all of the rights to his divinity and his divine power. So Jesus in Luke chapter 8 says, who touched me? I felt the power go out. Who did it? Why? Because he didn't know. He was in every way human. The Spirit of God rested upon him, granted him divine power to do divine works and to have divine knowledge and and discernment and to know the thoughts and intentions of others' hearts, but only as the Spirit directed. And Jesus here makes that obvious because he says, I don't know when I'm coming back. The second person of the Trinity, eternally existent, the creator, sovereign of the universe, is a humble slave. And only the Father knows the day and the hour of this weighty coming of Christ. Without sin, Christ lived, which made him able to suffer as a substitute for sinners. With that said, we press into the weightiness of the illustration. Verse number 37, the days of Noah are used as the illustration. The explanation comes in verse 38. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. And then there's these two illustrations. Two men are in the field, one's taken, one's left. Two women are grinding at the mill, one's taken, one's left. Now, as we unpack that and as we read that, there's not a lot there that's difficult to understand. Uh, We're familiar with the story of Noah, particularly those of us who have been blessed in the study of Genesis in our Adult Bible Fellowship. And it's another shameless plug for Scott's ministry to us in teaching there. Nine o'clock, old boardroom, or boardroom, old bandroom. Get there, be there, and learn. Be familiar with the days of Noah. We are, and we're excited about it. And in those days, there was a a lackadaisical approach. For 120 years, this crackpot named Noah was building a boat, saying it was going to flood, it was going to rain, God was going to judge. Oh, Noah, Noah, we got a wedding next week. Relax, let's celebrate. Eat, drink. And then it came. It came. And they all died. And Noah lived. That's what the coming of Christ is going to be like. Oh, relax. Relax. I mean, he's been gone thousands of years. Let's not get stressed out about this, right? I mean, the early church, they probably thought he was coming too. What good did it do them? Relax. And then he's coming. And the the weightiness of the division of humanity is powerful. Two men in a field? Which two men are usually in a field? Two men in a field at this point, it's probably a father and a son. It may be brothers. They're working the same field. It's their field. They're at least friends. And he comes. Just like the flood came. He comes. Whether one is taken means one is judged and one is left means one is blessed. Or as we take the illustration of Noah, those that were swept away were actually the ones that were judged and the ones that were left behind were actually the ones that were blessed. 
That's not the point of what Jesus is doing here with the illustration. He's driving home the division and the weightiness and the heaviness of his return. It will once and for all delineate people. Two women at the grinding mill. I don't think many of you have been at the grinding mill this, this week. Ladies, you look, you look like you haven't been at the grinding mill. It's got a handle and it's on a pivot. And one lady sits on one side and turns it halfway around. Let's go. Other lady grabs it from the other side. Whips at the other 180 degrees. Boom, 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 boom. Until that is all ground up into a fine powder and can be used for cooking. Which two ladies sit and do that? Well, at, at, at least they're friends. Because they're spending intimate, close work time together. Where there's nothing but turning a knob and then turning it again. What do you do? You talk to each other. Most likely they're relatives. They're mother and daughter. One is being... Demanded to do her chores. One is providing for her baking for that week. And then Jesus comes. And they're, they're forever separated. Because, brothers and sisters, the coming of Christ is weightier than we like to think about it. We like to think of it all in fluffy, happy terms. It's when we get out. It's when we get to Him. It's when we see Him. But it's when He returns in glorious power and might and He sets down His enemies. This is heavy. The importance here is there's a division that will occur at the coming of Christ and it's an unavoidable division. You can't run from it. You can't hide from it. It's just coming. It's dramatic. It's unavoidable. And it leads us into the final observation in this paragraph. It leads us into application beginning in verse number 42. So Jesus coming is nearer than I think it is. It's weightier than I think it is. And thirdly, Jesus' coming is more relevant than I think it is. Relevance is like buzzword in the church today. Um, obviously, if you've been here today, you realize this isn't all about relevance. This isn't all about what's going to help people be really attracted to being here. All of this time of, of, of intentional study. But relevance needs to be a part of our thinking when we come to the scriptures because the Bible is, is, is relevant across time. There is at no time in human history where the words of God are not relevant to the people of God. There is no time in history where the words of God are not warning to those that are not the people of God. So brothers and sisters, don't think of any portion of this book as being irrelevant, as being non-applicable. And certainly don't think of eschatology, of the coming of Christ, of the end, of the return of Christ, as being somehow disconnected from you. It is more relevant than I like to think of it. And I, I'm concerned it's more relevant than you're thinking it is. Because in verse 42, Jesus uses that great word in our Bible study that we circle, that we underline, that we mark out, because He turns us from information to application. He gets us from truth to to life he gets from our head to our feet and he says therefore therefore stay awake i find that interesting the first relevant application of all of this study of the return of christ is stay awake he didn't say wake up you know why because the disciples were very awake their eyes were probably this big 
He just told them the temple was going to be knocked down. And then he starts telling them all of these things that are going to take place. And they're probably sitting in front of him. And spiritually and physically, they are awake. And we are awake for these studies. If, 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 if only on Sundays, we're conscious of the return of Christ. And the application that Jesus brings home is that the nearness and the severity of the return of Christ demands that we stay awake. Now, why do we stay awake? Well, he doesn't leave us to wonder what he means by this application. He gives us explanation. Verse 42. For, explanation number one, stay awake because you know what you don't know. When it comes to eschatology, your eyes need to stay open because you know what you don't know. What does he tell us you don't know? Verse 42. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. You don't have all of the timing information. So stay awake. You know He is coming. You know His word is sure. It is settled. It will never pass away. You know the basic framework of, of those, those elements, those, those potentials that are existent from the first generation and are ongoing today. Deception and terror and desertion and salvation. Those things are ongoing and you know the basic framework of realities that will surround the coming of Christ. The great antichrist, the great enemy will come. The counterfeits will come and declare that they are the Christ or they know where he is. And then he will come. But you don't know, you don't know the day of his return. You don't know the structure of the date and the time. You don't know the timing of the Lord's return. So stay awake. Verse 43, stay awake because of what you do know, not just what you don't know. Verse 43, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. So what do you know? You know that if you got a memo by email this week that said, hey, by the way, some local thugs have uh, put together a little calendar and you're on the calendar this week. They're coming over to your place and they're going to be there between 10 and 2. And they're going to steal everything that they can get their hands on inside of your house. Um, you, I, you would erase that, call that spam, call your internet provider, whatever. But if, if this were realistic, you would stay up from 10 to 12 with your friends Smith and Weston. Right? Or you'd call your friends in this church who have many to share with you. And then you would sit with theirs. You would stay up. You know that. You understand from life. So Jesus says, this is common information. If you knew a thief was coming, you would stay up during that period of time and be alert and ready for his coming so that he wouldn't get into your house. Brothers and sisters in Christ and unbelievers who are with us this morning, the coming of Jesus is more relevant than you could ever imagine. Stay awake because of what you know you don't know. And stay awake because of what you know about masters of homes and thieves. The return of Christ is coming. You know the general framework. Keep your eyes open. Verse number 42, or verse number 44 rather. Second relevant application from Jesus and a second use of the word therefore. Therefore, you also must be ready. Stay awake and be ready. That is, prepare for, why? For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. 
so you face an unexpected arrival. My sweet wife called me this morning. My youngest is sick. She has a fever. Renee called me. <laughs> Very much an unusual thing for her to call me while I'm in my study in the morning early on Sundays. But she calls me and says, hey, just FYI, if you invite anybody over, make sure that they, they're not bringing kids because we don't want to make them sick. And, and, and I will have the house ready for people to come over if you want to do that. No. I'm letting you into my life, telling you about that. Why would my wife do that? Because there have been times when her loving leader of her home has invited people to their home, to our home, and we weren't ready. And I was reminded by my sweet wife that we weren't ready for them to come. Um, What do you do at that point? Please go sit in your car for the next 12 minutes. Um... What are you going to do? Nothing? Just sit in your car. Here's a glass of orange juice, lemonade, something. Sit in your car. Relax. Jesus says, you be ready. Why? Because you have an unexpected visitor. And he's the king of heaven. You don't know when he's coming and that lack of understanding or knowledge of when to expect his coming, the hour, the timing, the, the, the epic of his return. You must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. My wife ministered in Hawaii for a few years. And in Hawaii, they'll say things like, we'll be over tomorrow. Okay, let's, uh, when tomorrow? Now, we'll be over. And they think that that's fine in their culture, that that means somewhere tomorrow, between the time the light comes up and goes down, they're going to come by. Jesus is coming. Be ready. His return is more relevant than you and I think. Secondly, Jesus extends a further reason to be ready. He asks a question that's it's a question that should be easily answered. He's setting up a scenario. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? So this is the one, the servant, who is responsible to get the food to the people that are in the home. All right, that's the the faithful servant who has been rewarded with the care of food for the family. Verse forty six. Blessed is that servant when his master will find when whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards instead of feeding the family, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and in an hour that he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So stay awake, be ready, be faithful. These are the relevant applications of the return of Christ. Jesus says here that when he comes, he comes evaluating those that are his servants. And the consequences for those who have considered his delay to be his laziness, his lack of concern. And have turned their lives into living for the world's priorities. Have set aside their professed allegiance to their king and master. Those ones will be punished eternally. The description that we find so shocking. That this master would come home and chop up his slave in pieces. And put him with the hypocrites. Uh, all of this seems like what is he talking about? Jesus is mingling here between 
of very real illustration and an eternal consequence. And we know that because of the words that are used at the last phrase in verse 51, in that place where that wicked slave is sent, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that is the description of the eternal judgment of hell. What do we do with the return of Christ? Do we dare say, I don't get into that eschatology stuff. I don't really get into the whole future thing. I mean, whatever happens, happens. I'm not really into that. Um, You know, it's hard to read that stuff. I mean, you ever try to read Revelation? Weird things going on in there. I don't do that. There are weird things going on in there. Okay, I, I understand that. But the return of Christ is more relevant than you think. Because it is the return of Christ in the future that will produce in you the uh, awakeness of today and this week. And it is the coming of Christ in the future that will fuel the preparation, the readiness today and this week. And it is the return of Christ that will fuel the faithfulness as a servant of Christ in your ministry this week. Let's go to one final passage and read it as our closer. Second Peter chapter 3. We started this study of Matthew 24 with this being our scripture reading on that particular Sunday several weeks ago now. And I think it's important for us to close out Matthew 24 by reading it again. Christian biblical theology of the end is vital. It's critical to Christian living in the present. The future informs the here and now. Second Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse number eight let's read these words consider them carefully but do not overlook this one fact beloved that with the lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day the lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed since all these things are thus to be dissolved. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, verse 14, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish and at peace and count the patience of our Lord as salvation just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. Comforting words here in verse 16. There are some things in them, that's Paul's words, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people, And lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen.
the biblical end is is nearer than we like to think. It's weightier than we want to consider. And it's more relevant than how we apply it. As God's people, let's be faithful to live this week, today, tomorrow, the middle of the week, with our eyes of faith set on the glorious return of Christ. May all of the implications come to bear on us. And if you're with us and you do not know Christ, the one who's coming is also the one who will save you from his coming. If you are not his child, if you are not his, if you are not in him, if you have not turned away from your sin, placed your, your faith in Christ, then when Christ returns, he will crush you. He will judge you for eternity, and rightly so, because you're a sinner, and no sin can dwell in the presence of God. But if you will turn today, call out for grace and mercy from this Jesus who was born a virgin, born of a virgin, born God, man, lived in perfect obedience to the standard of God. He was perfectly obedient and then went to a cross and died in the place of sinners like you. And on the third day, he rose again. If you if you will be granted eyes to see the good news of Jesus and will run in faith to Christ, Christ will save you from himself. You are facing his wrath unless you repent and believe. Father, bring the end to bear on the present. For those who do not know your son and are not known by him, may they fear the end and may that fear drive them to repentance and faith. And for those of us who have by nothing of our own merit, but only by your kindness to us, undeserved kindness, only by your grace, have been brought near to you, have been adopted as sons and daughters, may the return of our Savior mark us this week through trial, through blessings, through responsibilities, through work, through parenting, through marriage, through school, through disagreements and discouragements. May the, the impending return of Christ, its, its nearness, its weightiness, may it, be, may it be relevant upon us. Not for our glory, but so that the greatness of Your name in changing sinners to be worshipers of Your cause and pursuers of Your purposes, those that would champion Your Son and exalt His name and live in dependence upon Your Spirit, May you get glory for your name through us. This is our desire. That you would be glorified in all these things. We'll give you thanks and praise as you continue the process day in and day out of renewing the inner man, of changing us to look more like Christ from the inside out. Thank you for your patience with us. Continue your work, we ask, in the name of Jesus. Amen.